0: We do hunger for that day when in Christ we stand with Christ in glory. We hunger for that day, and that is a hunger that God himself has created in us and that he shall surely satisfy. He does so on this day, the Sabbath day, which is a foretaste of that great day to come. And not only is this day a foretaste of that It is one of the means by which he gets us to that day. Because here we have word and sacrament and prayer. Here we have a whole day that is an oasis for our souls. So that Christ deals graciously with us. And teaches us and even changes us. God is getting us to that day. And he does so by means... Of his word, and so we turn again now to God's word, turning back to Psalm 119. The past few weeks, we've been learning from God's word about God's word. We've been learning from God's word about God's word. Two weeks ago, what we learned is that. God's Word centers on God's Word, and by that I mean the written Word, which is the Bible. It centers on the living Word, who is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Bible is all about Him, from start to finish. The Old Testament pointed forward to him in time. The New Testament points back to him on earth and up to him in heaven. Jesus is the Bible's main character. That was a couple weeks ago. And then last week, what we learned is that the writings, the sacred writings that make up our Bible, they were breathed out by God as his own word. And they were breathed out by him so that we might be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained by them and even saved. The sacred writings, they have that kind of power. They are able as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 3, they are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The writings that make up our Bible, they were divinely breathed out, and then in the course of our our own lives, they are humanly handed over because it's flesh and blood, living and breathing fellow believers in our lives who hand the Bible over to us in different ways, precisely so that we will be saved, and taught, and rebuked, and corrected, and trained, trained in righteousness to the glory of God. So that was last week, and all of that we got from 2 Timothy 3, which we heard earlier in our service again. So maybe uh, you remember last week. I won't be offended if you don't. Our Old Testament reading last week was the opening verses of Psalm 119. So as I mentioned earlier in our service today, we're doing something of a swap today, we're taking these opening verses in Psalm 119, and we are, you might say, promoting them and making them our sermon text and training our attention on those verses. Now, especially the opening three verses of this psalm, there is a beatitude here. At the very beginning of this long, glorious psalm about God's Word, there is a beatitude, a pronouncement of blessedness. So we are going to focus on verses 1, 2, and 3, but let me read for us the first eight verses. Listen now to the Word of God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his way. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, that becomes our prayer now. As those who love your word, we cry out, Father, do not forsake us. And even as we say that, We rejoice in the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. So we pray that you would draw near to us even now by word and spirit, that we might grow in our love for your word and in our sense of blessedness as those of whom that is true. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. there are any number of ways that you might fill in the following blank. Happiness is blank. Happiness is. Happiness is a cool fall night with a fire in the wood-burning stove and a freshly baked dessert on my plate. I long for those days. They are coming. Happiness is lining up a backhand and then finding it actually goes where I wanted it to go. I think that happened once in 1997. <laughs> happiness is turning in the last final exam of the semester, and to this day, I remember that feeling, especially the last semester of college, a mix of happiness and What do I do now? Happiness is a cribbage hand that has six, seven, seven, eight, and then the next card that's turned up is an eight. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, my fellow cribbage players, saying amen. Happiness is going up to sing the high note and actually hitting it. More seriously, happiness is a sense of love and fellowship in the family. Happiness is that sense of satisfaction that comes from a job well done after a lot of hard work. Happiness is relief after suffering, whether it was suffering of body or of heart and mind. How would you fill in that blank, happiness is? Whether it's something trivial or something weighty, what makes for happiness? Put another way, what makes for blessedness? Because that's what the word blessedness means. It means that sense of fullness and satisfaction within that comes from being in the possession of something that you delight in and long for. Read through the the King James Version, and in some places it is the word happy. That's used instead of the word blessed because it's the same basic idea that sense of fullness and satisfaction that comes from being in the possession of something that you delight in and deeply so. We, we tend to think of the word happy as a word that describes a relatively superficial emotion, but that's unfair to the word happy. Happiness can run deep. So, whichever word you use, blessedness, happiness. The question is, where do you find it? How do you get it? I think it's fair to say that some Christians, and maybe you're one of them, some Christians squirm at the suggestion that we're meant to be happy. Or that we ought to be concerned with being happy, not, not just making others happy and blessed by serving them and tending to their needs, but being happy ourselves. That kind of talk makes some Christians uncomfortable, and that's the case for a number of reasons. Could be one reason that a particular Christian has known so much pain that the very language of blessedness or happiness seems cruel. Because they think, look, everybody knows there's no such thing. And so when somebody says to them, fill in the blank, happiness is, the answer they come back with, at least in their minds, and perhaps also expressed in their words is, happiness is a joke and a cruel one at that. Or it could be that a particular Christian has been damaged by one-sided teaching about the chief end of man. Man's chief end is to glorify God, period. Full stop, nothing more. But that's to miss out on the rest of the answer, which is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him, and that forever. But if you've spent your whole life having it hammered into your head that God's glory matters and your enjoyment, your happiness does not, then the very question, what makes for happiness, isn't going to make sense. It isn't going to compute. It isn't going to ring true. So when somebody says to them, fill in the blank, happiness is, the answer they come back with is, happiness is not my business. It's not my concern. It's above my pay grade. Or one more, thinking especially about these days, it could be that a particular Christian is so overwhelmed by the relentless waves of human misery that so many people are experiencing around the world, that the very thought of our blessedness and being interested in it seems almost wrong. Who am I to be happy at such a time as this? And so when somebody says to them, fill in the blank, happiness is, the answer they come back with is something like, happiness is for another time, maybe even for another world altogether, and not this one. How, how can I possibly concern, be concerned about my own blessedness in such a world as this one? So it's a lot of things. It's a lot of reasons, and every one of those reasons runs deep. And perhaps at least one of them rings true with you. They are not to be dismissed. And yet, we cannot get away from this. The Bible won't let us. The Bible won't let go of this, won't let go of us. When it comes to our own happiness, our own blessedness, even in this world. So that if, as a Christian, you squirm at the suggestion that you're meant to be happy then the Bible's going to make you squirm God's Word. Because there's blessedness talk in the Bible, and not just in a few verses here and there, it's here and there and practically everywhere. The Bible keeps appealing to what we might call a sanctified sense of self-interest, including here in the first three verses of Psalm 119. Again, think about everything that, that we learned last week. That The writings that make up our Bible, they were breathed out by God as his own word so that we might be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained in righteousness so that we might be saved. Well, if all of that's true, if all of that's true of the Bible, then it must be the case that there is the greatest possible blessedness that comes from knowing it and living by it. It must be that it's not a cruel joke, the idea of experiencing personal blessedness. It must be that it's not above your pay grade, and it's not just for another world. It must be that it's possible, and it's real, and it's your calling in this world to seek it and find it in the way that God in His Word would have you seek and find. And these verses here at the beginning of Psalm 119 are enormously helpful in helping us to think this through and to latch on to it with a God-wrought faith. It's been pointed out that these three verses, the first three verses in a psalm that has 176 of them, these verses are almost the only verses in the whole psalm in which God is not addressed directly. In these verses, the psalmist is not talking to God. He's talking about the Word of God to anyone who will listen. And what he's talking about in particular is blessedness. It's happiness. And in this respect, Psalm 119 is just like the whole book of Psalms, all 150 of them. Remember how the whole book begins way back It's Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's Psalm 1. We usually think of the book of the Psalms as a prayer book, and it is, but that does not mean that all of the language that you encounter in the book is language that's spoken directly to God. No, the opening verses of the whole book are a beatitude. And even to put it that way can be a little jarring, because whenever we hear the word beatitude, what do we immediately think of? We think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And those are Beatitudes. But so is this one at the very beginning of the psalm. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it. The gateway to the whole psalter is a Beatitude. Well, how fitting then that the gateway to Psalm 119 is to This psalm, this glorious, long psalm that's all about the Word of God begins with this beatitude to anyone who will listen, the blessedness that's to be found in and by the Word. Listen to the verses again. Psalm 119, verses 1, 2, and 3. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Notice all of the ways in just those three verses that the truly blessed ones are described. And it is quite a description, it's quite a litany. Their way is blameless. They walk in the Lord's law. They keep the Lord's testimonies. They seek Him with their whole heart. They also do no wrong. They walk in His ways. We might sum it up this way. What's true of these people? They seek. They obey. They walk. They seek. That is to say, they go after the knowledge of God. They don't sit around and wait for it to come to them. And they know that God's word is where they've got to seek it. So there's that, they seek. Second, they obey. That is to say, they keep the commandments of God that they find when they open this book and seek the truth. So they seek, they obey, and then we can also say they walk. Because this seeking and this obeying, that's their lifestyle. They don't just dabble in the word of God now and then. No, day after day. They're about the business of seeking and obeying. As I was thinking on this point, I thought of that quote from Richard Steele that was shared in our sermon discussion last week, that these things don't just happen. We've got got to seek them and and obey and, and walk in these ways so that these realities are realized in our own lives, so this blessedness is ours to experience. So what's true of these people? They seek. They obey. They walk. Now, to put it that way, in terms of those three, that that makes sense. No surprise, right? Seeking, obeying, walking. These are characteristic of the Christian life as we love this word and open it and read it. What might throw us here is just how strong and and unflinching some of the language is in these verses. The psalmist uses words like blameless. They, They seek with their whole heart. These people do no wrong. And at that point, we might start thinking, This does not describe me, and it never has, and it never will, and it cannot. No sinner is entirely blameless. Every sinner does some wrong. And so maybe we begin to harbor the suspicion that this is cruel, or at least mystifying and frustrating. Blessed are those who are marked by traits by which no one is marked. What good does that do me? So the the language that's so strong here might throw us, might even discourage us. And this, at the very gateway of this whole psalm, are we going to give up after verse 3 and say, apparently this psalm isn't for me, I guess I'd turn now to Psalm 120. Well, a few things to bear in mind here. The first is this, do not sell short, Christians. Do not sell short the grace of God, which has already changed you. If you're a believer, well then, there has taken place in you, in your heart, a decisive, absolute break with the power of sin. That is the Bible's own testimony about you. Sin still troubles you, even deeply, But sin no longer reigns over you. You've been changed. You've been made new. At the core of your being, there is now love for God. That's your new principle. That's your new fundamental orientation. Love for God. And that's why the Bible can speak so strongly and unflinchingly about who we are now and what we're like and how we live. The language of 1 John came to mind for me, 1 John 3. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, a few verses later. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God, 1 John 3. Now, that's very strong language, too, and it's the same basic idea, in your life, in your heart, deep down, there's been a decisive break. There's been a radical turning. And that, that new core of your being, fundamental orientation, it shows. It shows outwardly in obedience. Your new principle deep down, it shows in your practice. And in the lives of many Christians, it shows quite remarkably. Their lives are remarkable for the consistency and the thoroughness of their seeking and their obeying and their walking. And that's why there are some people in the Bible, some sinners in the Bible, who are described as blameless. Job was one of them. The very first verse of that book, Job 1, verse 1, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Or flipping To the New Testament, think about Zechariah and Elizabeth, the, the parents of John the Baptist. Luke 1, verse 6 says, They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And you see, there's walking. For them, it was a lifestyle and not an occasional dabbling. Zechariah and Elizabeth. That's why this is held forth for Christians in Philippians as a realistic aspiration for us, even in this life. Listen to Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. There Paul writes, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's also why this can be held forth as a standard for the men who would be elders in the church. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, Paul says this about them. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, above reproach in the eyes of those who know him who witness his conduct. It must be that it's possible to be that. So this is an important point to grasp. Even in this cursed world, this world that's full of fallen men and women, there are some things that are more or less what they're meant to be, including some Christians who are thoroughly faithful, who can be described as above reproach. Not that they're without sin, of course not. But even in the way they handle their sin, There's a faithfulness. There's an integrity. There's a walking in repentance. It's consistent with the faith they profess and live. So, yes, it's very strong language that we've got here in these verses that are the gateway to Psalm 119. But that's the first thing to say about that language. Christian, do not underestimate what grace has already done in you, so that this is actually possible in this life. So that's the first thing to say. And then the second thing to say is this. God isn't done with you. You're still a work in progress. Don't lose sight of what grace has yet to do, and will certainly do. So it's true, there's this unbreakable bond between blamelessness and blessedness, between holiness and happiness, and that very truth ought to have the effect of stirring us so that we want it even more. And so we aspire for this. This becomes not just our our present reality, but also our goal, our aim moving forward. No, right now we're not all that we ought to be but right now we're we're also not all that we're going to be. And that very thought stirs us, drives us forward, wets our appetite. So it stirs us to think about the more that we might know in this life, but then we can keep going. It also stirs within us a longing for heaven. Because it's in the world to come that we will be fully and finally, blameless, without blemish, so that it's in the world to come that we will be fully and finally blessed, happy to the uttermost. All that to say, both in this life and as we press on in this life and then in the life to come, blessed are those who love the Word of God from the inside out. Blessed are those. And then, as we continue to think on this, then the question becomes, okay, why is there blessedness in this Bible-centered way of life? What is it about that, that way of Seeking and obeying and walking according to the light that shines from this book. What is it about that that makes for blessedness, that makes for happiness? Well, first of all this, there's blessedness in the Word-centered life because you meet God here in the Word. And knowing God is life. Jesus said so in prayer. John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God, to have God, is to have that which is most precious by far, and it's here that we meet him, that we get to know him. As we seek and obey and walk. Here I thought of um, the, the, the conclusion of Psalm 73. We looked at this psalm together, I think, last year. He writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's Psalm 73. And that language, too, can be jarring. The very thought that we can have God. The very thought that we can talk about God as our portion to say that we have God, but we do. In the sense that that we, we have a relationship with Him, a relationship in which He has actually stooped down and bound Himself to us with unbreakable cords of covenant love. In that sense, we we have Him who is our deepest delight. We have Him as our portion. And in the Bible, we meet Him. And as we spend time with this book, we get to know Him better. Blessed are those. And then second, we can say, there's blessedness in the Word-centered life because you meet Christ in the Word. And Christ shed His blood for our forgiveness. What do you find when you you open up this book? Well, among other things, you find the beatitude of Psalm 32. I'm telling you, there are beatitudes all over the Psalms. Psalm 32 begins like this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is forgiven is covered. Psalm 32. It's in that psalm that David describes vividly the painful agony that he felt so long as he held back on confessing his sin, and then the sweet relief that he finally knew when he owned up to his sin and confessed it. The point is when you open up the Word you find that God has made provision in Christ for that forgiveness so that you might add your amen to what David says. In this book, in this word, you meet the Savior. And then one more. We've said that you meet God here. We've said that you meet Christ here. Here's one more answer to the question. There's blessedness in the word-centered life because... God's commandments perfectly fit who we are, the commandments that he's given about how to live. They perfectly correspond to the way that we were designed, and of course they do, because God, the one who has spoken these commandments, is the one who designed them. The Word tells us how to live, and if you live that way, you're living the way you were meant to live. In other words, you're no longer fighting against your own nature. If you operate a piece of equipment, according to the manufacturer's instructions, you're no longer fighting it in a way that's going to damage it. No, instead, you might say, you're freeing that thing up to operate the way it was supposed to, After the recent home renovation that our family went through, we've got a number of different appliances and devices and toys in the house. Happiness is to be found in using them the way they're supposed to be used. To be sure, that's limiting, but happy are those limitations. We bless God for them. So it is with divine image bearers and the divine word, God's commandments fit who we are. And so there's that sense of fullness and satisfaction that comes from living accordingly. The God who designed is the God who demands, the God who commands. No wonder then that the psalmist can say here at the gateway of this psalm, blessed are those who seek who obey, who walk according to the Word of God. Now, brothers and sisters, what, what does this mean for our lives today? How does this touch down? Because it certainly does. This certainly ought to shape our lives, our thinking, our feeling, our willing. So, a few thoughts about application here. First of all, this. What does this mean? It means that you ought to want to be happy. When we hear somebody say, God wants you to be happy, immediately our guard goes up, and understandably so. Why? Because that immediately brings to mind prosperity gospel. Health and wealth. Name it and claim it, and I'll sorts of nonsense. God wants you to be happy. But what if it's true? And what we're learning today is, Christian, it is true. We just need to make sure that we get all of the important theological safeguards in place so that we don't wander from the path into prosperity gospel and all the rest of it. So let's bear in mind certain safeguards here. One, it's not the case that your happiness is the ultimate concern in the universe. God's glory is that. Second, it's not the case that God is pitifully, powerlessly standing by, wanting you to be happy, and just crossing his divine fingers, hoping it works out that way. And three, it's not the case that true happiness in this life means a suffering-free life. Quite to the contrary. One, God is the glorious one whose glory transcends. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So there's that safeguard. Two, God is the sovereign one whose loving purpose, including the happiness of his people, shall certainly be fulfilled as he intends. There's that safeguard. And then three, this world is a cursed world. And every single one of us, believers included, is living under that cloud. Christ himself did. Christ himself suffered on the way to the glory and happiness of heaven, and we servants are no greater than our master. So by all means, let's get all of those important theological safeguards in place, but once they're in place, within those important parameters, let's say it. And without apology, God desires the happiness of his people. He feels that genuine, sovereign, divine desire. Christian God wants you to be happy, wants you to be blessed. And if that makes you squirm, If that makes you uncomfortable, you need to face that and resolve that. And camping out with this beatitude and others like it is a good place to start. Because you should want it too. And if you don't, if you've effectively given up on the prospect of blessedness, if you've managed to deaden your own soul against that desire, then these verses, the gateway to Psalm 119, they're, they're not going to make sense to you. And if these three verses don't ring true, then you're probably going to tune out the other 173 that follow in this psalm. And for that matter, you're going to have a hard time tuning into the Bible at all. Have you given up on happiness Look to the Lord to stoke the fires of your own desire again, and sure enough, you look to Him for that very grace in this very book, in the Word that He has given. And and circling back to some things we noticed at the beginning, it could be that you've been hurt deeply in your life, and the pain and the scars are still there. It could be that you've been taught badly in your life, taught that happiness isn't your business, it could be that you're feeling overwhelmed, maybe even this morning, by the images of human misery that are practically inescapable in the news right now. We talked about this a little bit yesterday around the table at our men's breakfast. We can admit that. And as I said before, all of that runs deep, and it is not to be dismissed. And yet at the same time, consistent with all of that, it must be that there's a blessedness, a sense of soul satisfaction that's possible even in a world like this, even with bad teaching that we may have been exposed to, even with the scars and the pains that we've known. It must be that there's the possibility of a blessedness that runs even deeper than the river of our own tears. Think about it. Whoever wrote Psalm 119, he lived in this world too with all of its sin and misery, and who knows what the pains were that he knew. Same thing with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Whoever wrote that was living in this world as well. All that to say, don't give up on this. Don't give up on the possibility, the reality, the calling, that there is a deep soul satisfaction that comes from knowing God and the mercy of God by faith in the Son of God. Even right here, And right now, even as you long and ache for the world to come, and of course you do. So there's that, first of all. Here's a second encouragement to us all. Christian, give thanks to God. Be grateful today. Be grateful today. Because as a Christian, by definition... You are numbered among the blessed ones. We are the people of the beatitude of God. And and that's driven home every Sunday at the very end when a word of benediction is pronounced to close our service. As a Christian, by definition... Yours is a life that's founded upon the Word and governed by the Word and driven by the Word. And, and sometimes we need to be reminded of that, that that's true of us. Over and over again in Paul's letters, he says something like, don't forget what you were when you were not in Christ. And I say it to all of us this morning, don't forget what you were or what, it, what you would be. If it weren't for the Word in your life. Thanks to the Word, you know God. Thanks to the Word, your sins are forgiven. Thanks to the Word, you know how to live. So don't forget to give thanks to the God whose Word it is because he did not have to say what he has said. He didn't have to reveal and save and guide in the way that he has. What mercy this is. And then a third and final word. I'll wrap up with this. Christian, press on. Leaning heavily upon the grace of God, press on in the word. You ought to want to be happy. While well, the word-centered life is the only way to have it. So we can fill in the blank. Happiness is knowing God and the mercy of God in Christ and the commandments of God as to how to live. Happiness is that life. And the Word is the pathway that God has shown us to live that way. And that conviction will be finally and fully vindicated on the day that our everlasting blessedness Is ushered in. What did we sing? We sang that we hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. What a beatitude day that will be. Set your hope fully on that day, the day when Christ comes back. Paul says we're waiting for our blessed hope. We can say our happy hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. May we press on until that day, and may this book light the way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have given us a book that lights the way. We are those who seek and obey and walk, and at the very same time we cry out for your grace that we might press on in that. For in this word we meet you and we meet our Savior and we learn of the way that we should go. So deal graciously with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.